Hi, everybody. Dan Blacksburg here with part two of my conversation with Barbara Kirschenblatt Gimblet. That's BKG for the Radiant Others Klezmer Music Podcast. Thanks for joining me. Today, we continue our conversation with BKG, picking up from where we left off, probably around when she started working on the Pauline Museum in Warsaw. This is, I guess, in the mid-2000s, but you'll hear from her. She actually wonderfully recaps a lot of what we talked about in part one, and then we get right into it with her work with the museum and all that's come along with that, living in Poland for the last 10 years and building this humongous and very, very important institution in Warsaw. Uh, I was lucky enough to visit the building of the Polian Museum before, unfortunately, the core exhibition that she developed was available. But even that uh, taste, incomplete taste of what was to come was remarkable and moving and really powerful. And we get deep into it today, talking about how the museum was put together and the exhibition came together and what kind of resources it takes to create something like that. We also get into a really interesting conversation about Jewish life. You know, this is a museum of Jewish life in Poland that spans in a thousand-year period. That's a much longer time than the period of time that our minds, I think, often go to when we think of Jews and Poland. And this is a conversation, while not having to do mm, specifically with klezmer music, instrumental music, is something that really resonates with me, because the music I play is the music of a culture that in many ways was uh, lost, minimized, uh, assimilated... Uh, and of course annihilated, you know, in the Holocaust. And yet we have to go out there and make this a living culture, not to mention the fact that a lot of the work for many of us klezmer musicians has taken place in countries like Poland and Germany. And so we have to encounter this history and think about it in a lot of the same ways that uh, BKG talks about in this conversation. You know, one thing that strikes me, especially since we just passed uh, the Day of Remembrance and we're celebrating today when I'm recording this on April 19th, the 75th anniversary of the start of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, and being online especially and reading the way many people mark these kind of events and the heaviness by which they do it, I find myself not really relating to that feeling that I'm getting from reading their remembrances or uh, posts or whatever. And especially since I knew that a lot of the topics that were going to come up in today's conversation uh, or today's part of the conversation were really going to touch on a lot of those things, I was thinking a lot about how I react to that stuff. And honestly, I, 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 I'm not exactly sure where I'm at these days. I don't really relate to... The heaviness, and of course I don't take this stuff lightly, but there's maybe something about the way that mm, I or potentially other people have to sort of move anyway. we got to move forward with our music that's related to all this, whether it's playing traditional klezmer music or writing our own music based on Jewish themes or Yiddish themes or even traditional or new traditional klezmer music. We just kind of have to move forward in spite of all the feelings and stuff. And and so that uh, leaves me in a weird place sometimes with all this stuff. And I hope that this conversation can be part of a discussion around that. And I hope that I can have a discussion with all of you who are listening to this, whether it's on social media or somewhere else. You know, I think it's worth unpacking all this stuff. And one of the great things about this conversation is hearing how Barbara dealt with all these issues when she was building this exhibition. So there's a lot in here that I think is really helpful for me to listen to, and I hope it's really helpful for you. All right. That being said, I have a couple announcements before we get to this. I've got two concerts to let you know about in Philadelphia. The first is on May 12th, and I'll be performing at the University Lutheran Church in West Philly, uh, I'll be doing a solo set, and then Anthony Coleman, the great pianist from New York, who we'll definitely have on this podcast sometime, 
is going to do a solo set, and then we're going to play together. And then the following Saturday on May 19th, I'll be bringing an all-star klezmer group to the 40th Street Summer Series. That's that free summer series that's run in partnership with UPenn and the Rotunda that happens on 40th Street around between Walnut and uh, Spruce. So those two are both going to be really excellent shows, and I hope that you can make it if you're in Philadelphia, and uh, maybe we'll figure out a way for you all to tune in if you're coming from elsewhere. So May 12th, me and Anthony Coleman, May 19th, All-Star Klezmer Band with the West Philly Orchestra also playing at the 40th Street Summer Series. So hope to see you there. And here is the rest of my conversation with BKG. I want to go back to the other formative experiences. So I would say that formative experiences were that discovery. Basically, that was what Evo gave me, was that discovery of this uh, whole world of scholarship and a sort of erudition and people who had dedicated their lives to this field who just uh, who perished. So that would be one. The second, I would say, it would be the opportunity to work l- with Lucien Dobrzyszewski, that he was the most magnificent human being. I just adored him. And he, I really felt like I got another PhD sitting at his feet because we worked so closely together on this collection of 15,000 photographs. And my sense of the history of Polish Jews during the 19th and 20th centuries, I really, what I, my first big sort of learning experience was really through him and through working with this collection. So that was, that was, that was pretty major. And what happened through that process was that I formed a kind of image bank of the history of Polish Jews through photography that was unlike anything I had ever seen before. It was not Vishniak, and it was not sort of Fiddler on the Roof. It was a range of Jewish life and a, a evolution of Jewish life over the course of, uh, I would say, 64, so that's like 40, uh, over the course of like 75 years, of 75 critical years. So that was really very, very uh, important. The third was this 40, 40 plus year conversation with my father where, and it was just amazing because I interviewed him and recorded the interviews from 1967 until the day he died and he died about nine years ago. Mm -hmm. And um, I never, I didn't start out with that as an intention. And initially it was part of the Swedish folklore survey, but then after that was done and after the dissertation was finished, I could have stopped but I didn't because it was the single most interesting conversation I could possibly have with him. And at first, you know, he did me a favor, but later it really became his project and eventually he began to paint what he could remember. And the, that experience, which was the closest I could get in the most detailed, fine-grained way to what it was like to grow up in Poland before the war, before the Holocaust, that was it. And I sort of have the feeling that in the course of those projects, with Lucien on the one hand, with my father on the other, that I evolved as a person, mm. that I was changed by those experiences, that I, um, I sort of, that I evolved and developed and deepened as a person in a way that you couldn't get from taking a course and passing an exam. That was a kind of, I would say that it reprogrammed my DNA that it was so profound. Those experiences were so unbelievably profound. And the third, the third big one, uh, was working on Pauline Museum of the History of Polish Jews in Warsaw. That was a big one. Is a big one. Continues to be a big one. I can imagine. I mean, it sounds like, based on your history, family history, your work, all of you, in a way, prepared you for that experience in a very profound and interesting way. Absolutely. You know, I had the feeling, again, it was the right time and the right place. Clearly. Everything. That was true for the very beginning mm-hmm. in 67. And it's true for for the this Pauline project, which uh, my contact with them started in 2002. And it comes at the very end of my career, so to speak. I mean, I'm not dead yet, but I think of this as the last phase of my career. And it came at a time when I could really do anything I wanted. 
Wow. I had tenure. I was a university professor, which is NYU's a way of saying distinguished professor. Uh-huh. And I f- felt, uh, when, I, when I learned what this project was, I thought to myself, this project is so important. It has such incredible potential. I want to give it everything I've got. I want to take everything I have ever learned, and I want to apply it. I want this to be the best possible museum of the history of Polish Jews ever. Yeah. And I want to bring everything I've got to it. But also, I want to think new thoughts about museums, and I think the best way to do that is to make one. <laughs> well, that's a lucky situation. So that's there so we great. go. So, so, okay, let's broaden out. So in 2002, you began to have conversations with people in Poland about correct. the possibility of creating a new museum. Well, basically, they were already working on it. Jerzy Halberstadt was the leading force and they had uh, the idea for it came up in '93 with the opening of the Holocaust Museum in Washington, and uh, they uh, so that was very because it was very ex- a very inspiring uh, exhibition still is a very inspiring exhibition, and it was very state of the art at the time, very filmic and right, very I remember. you know you can remember very televisual. Yeah, that was the kind of thing they uh, they shoved us towards when we hit bar mitzvah age. I uh-huh. was a, so I, I was 13 in 1996, so I think we went then. Yeah, so that was Maybe right at the beginning. Maybe early, yeah. yeah. right at the very beginning. So Grzyna Pawlak, who was working at a Jewish NGO in Poland, the Association of the Jewish Historical Institute of Poland, it's a Jewish NGO that was established in 1951. So she was at the opening, she came back, and Sheikha Weinberg, who was the director of that museum and who was in charge of that exhibition, had encouraged her to think in terms of a museum. And in the years that followed, basically... The association, with a little bit of money they could raise, developed an outline of the historical program, a database of material. They got the mayor of Warsaw to agree uh, to give them a plot of land in facing the monument to the ghetto heroes. And um, in 2000, in the year 2000, they commissioned, they contracted a very good design firm in London called Event Communications to create a master plan for the exhibition. So they had no building, they had no collection, but they had the idea for the story. And I was contacted by Jerzy Halberstadt in 2002 to review the work they had done, to review the outline of the historical program, review the database, and review the master plan, which I did. I came to Warsaw for a week, and I did. And we stayed in touch and continued to communicate and to meet. And then the museum was actually founded in 2005 as a public-private partnership between this Jewish NGO, the Association, City of Warsaw, and the Ministry of Culture and National Heritage. And once it was founded... In that same year, the association organized the International Architectural Competition for the building, and the winner is this Finnish architect, Rainer Machlamaki, wonderful yeah. architect. Yeah, it's an amazing building. It's beautiful. And then in 2006, uh, then the association was ready to move forward with the exhibition, and Yeja invited me to lead the development of the permanent ex- exhibition. We call it the core exhibition, which I began to do in which that process really uh, started formally in April of 2006 and together we formed the academic team and there's a curatorial team and we were working again with the London designers so that's basically uh, how that happened and you were you basically moved to Poland and I moved to Poland and I lived in Poland full time for more than 10 years wow had you spent much time in Poland before then yeah I mean I had started uh, my first time in Poland was 1981 during okay. martial law. Wow. And then I went back, I think, around 87 or so, or 80, around then. Uh, and then in the 90s, I think around 95, more or less, uh, Steve Zipperstein and Jan Gross organized a summer program for NYU in Krakow. And it was a five-week summer program. It was great. Yeah, Krakow is a fun city to hang out Wonderful. in the summer. And we did, we did it in Kazimierz. And I took my parents with me. And oh, great. So uh, I spent five weeks then, and then uh, I started to go back more regularly in the 2000s for the Krakow Jewish Culture Festival. Right. So, yeah. Yeah, I, uh, not to digress from this too much, but yeah, my, my, one of my first things I did graduating from college was go to the Krakow Jewish Culture Festival. We were supposed to play for, with German Goldenstein and back him up, and I was going to be the trombone player. Certainly my first big gig, big break in this music, and... Uh, Unfortunately, he died a month before oh. the performance, so it turned out to be a memorial for Germán Goldenstein. And um, just going there, what a shock. 
I mean, first of all, it was my first time abroad, so I was I was having so many culture shocks like <laughs> daily, you know. What year? Uh, two thousand six. Wow. So I was twenty two. I had graduated from college a month beforehand, and was on a plane, and I traveled around Europe after that, and stayed with people. So I had all the kinds of culture, Western European culture shocks, I would say, because I think Kashmir's was the or Krakow was the farthest east I went that trip, but experiencing that level of like investment and excitement about Jewish culture from non-Jews. Mm. But at the same time, feeling not having the kind of feelings that I had heard from my, uh, the older generations of people, people who are 10, 20, 30 years older than me about, you know, going there, experiencing, you know, this, I mean, you know, I visited Auschwitz and that was exactly what that is. You know, that's this particular kind of experience but I didn't have the same. It was all great. It, maybe it was because I was in my twenties. I don't know. But it was all just. It was. It was so freeing in that way. But I was in Warsaw in 2013 for the Singer Festival, and I got to visit the museum. Unfortunately, the exhibition wasn't there yet, so I haven't seen that. You but come I got back. to see there. I, I. I would love to. I got to yeah. find that. Got to come So back. okay. So you move. So you move to Warsaw in 2006. No more like. 2007, 2008. And this is your now full-time job. Yes, has been since then. And the exhibition opened in 14, right? 2014. Yeah. So October 2014. Right. So what were some I mean, we obviously have to get to today and talk about all that. But what were some of the new challenges you faced? You said you wanted to look, take a look at museums differently. Like, what happened? All the exhibitions I had curated uh, were based on collections. Right. So whether it was a photography collection at Evo or the textile collection at the Jewish Museum. Or your father's. Or, or my father's paintings. Or it, whether it was, at, for example, the, at the Smithsonian, the Festival of American Folklife, working with living traditions. Gotcha. So I'd always, always worked with original objects or with people and uh, living traditions. And I had never, ever worked on an exhibition that was a multimedia narrative exhibition. Hmm. And if anything, I didn't start out feeling like that was my, that, that would be my favorite, most preferred mode. And always, in my experience, when I'm confronted with something that I resist... I know I should go there. <laughs> That's a great quality to have. That that if I'm resisting it, there must be something going on there that I should explore. Yeah. And I should go there. And of course, that's what I did. And, and in a way, it was the smartest thing I could have done because, as it turns out, it was absolutely the most extraordinary experience. First of all, I learned a tremendous amount. I mean, I feel, I mean, I brought everything I could to it, but what I learned is astronomical. I learned from the designers, for example, because these were very skilled, very experienced designers. They really knew what they were doing. And it's really an art form. Uh, they, they learn from architecture. They learn from filmmaking. They know how to do storytelling. They know how to design scenography. They know how to use media. And they know how to reach visitors. And so I just learned a ton from working with these designers. Second of all, I had a marvelous team of academics. So I felt like I got another couple of PhDs mm -hmm. working with these academics, specialists in medieval, you know, Jewish, Polish Jewish history in the medi medieval period with the greatest, you know, expert on the topic, uh, Hannah Zaremska, a wonderful scholar, or working with Sam Kassow, with uh, Marcin Wojcinski, with the best Holocaust scholars, uh, with uh, um, Jacek Leochak, Barbara Engelking, with Adam Teller for the early modern period, with uh, Helena Datner and Stasia Krajewski for the post-war period, with Michael Steinloff. So it was really a very... It was rich. It was extraordinarily rich intellectually. Mm -hmm. It was extraordinarily rich in terms of exhibition, thinking, concept, design. And it was also very rich curatorially in terms of the primary sources and materials that we were working with. I, I must say I developed a lot of new thoughts about museums and exhibitions. Many, many new thoughts. And then started writing about it. So I've published quite a bit. And I want to write a book about the making of the exhibition because I have such great documentation and 
all the iterations of particular elements where we couldn't come up with a good solution and kept on trying, 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 and all the versions and variants till we got from here to there. Mm. I, it's the process is just exceptional, and I'm just in a great position to be able to write about it. So that's what I want to do. That's awesome. So you mentioned going in, you really had some dreams and you sort of had some goals. And I think that you, it seems to me that you felt you had a very big, uh, like sort of kinetic reaction to the opportunity. I really think about for you, how were things changing and reacting? And when you realized something big that you didn't know you had to do, but suddenly it becomes clear, well, we got to really focus on that now. And all that kind of stuff. Was that part of the process well, too? Well, what I would say is that at first, I don't think I fully understood the potential and nature of multimedia in such an exhibition. Gotcha. I had experienced, I mean, I'd been to Beretutzot and I had, you know, been to the Holocaust Museum and I, I, you know, it wasn't as if I hadn't been exposed to multimedia narrative experiences, but in the case of this project, I, what I didn't want was a bunch of uh, mo- uh, computer monitors and people tapping a computer monitor. This was something I absolutely didn't want. And uh, I didn't want it to be so informational. I wanted it to be more experiential. And I was worried that there would be a lot of facts and that they would be delivered on computers and that people would be, you know, looking things up in databases. And I, that for me was anathema. But working with uh, event communications in London and working especially with one, one particular designer, uh, Arnaud Deschel, who was absolutely marvelous. The other, other designers were, were really very good, too. And they had a, somebody called an interpreter whose task was to really uh, help the designers achieve a certain level of storytelling and communication by her processing what we were giving them. So she was doing that for them, and I was doing it for us. Mm-hmm. In other words, I was, in a sense, the go-between between us and them, and she between them and us. I think that discovering the potential of media, broadly conceived, was one of the first, one of the first sort of eureka moments. That was a very, a very, very big moment, getting over my initial anxiety about computer screens. And I, I didn't want computer screens, and I didn't get computer screens. I got really something else uh, quite different from that. Then I would say that one of the challenges was that the scholars felt a responsibility to include, to be very complete in what they presented. And the designers felt a responsibility to be the visitor's advocate, which meant less is more. Sure. So how to, how, to, how to somehow navigate between the desire on the part of uh, the, the content team to include more and more and more and the part of the design team to have less and less and less and to find the right balance to be able to actually deliver a historically well-grounded, intellectually coherent and accurate story that is very impactful, emotional, engaging for the visitor. So that was a, a kind of a negotiation, I would say. Well, what a useful thing to uh, have studied the aesthetics of everyday, everyday life, life for a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that helps. That helps. <laughs> then I would say that there were some different ideas on the part of some of our supporters. Some of them wanted to see a greater emphasis on anti-Semitism. Others wanted to see a greater emphasis on famous Jews who had made important contributions to Polish and world, world cultures. Others wanted us to uh, give greater emphasis to uh, the assimilated Jews. So there, there were, if you will, people who, for whom particular aspects of this history were extremely important. And so when they looked at the exhibition, there wasn't enough of it there. Mm-hmm. There were some who said there's not enough Judaism. Don't ask me how that's possible. Anybody could say there's not enough Judaism. But clearly this was somebody who expected to see it in one place you know, something on, quote, Judaism. Right. Um, so there were others who wanted a more uh, stronger curatorial statement. Where do we stand as curators, as scholars, that we should tell the visitors, you know, what we think about Kelsa or Yedvabna or whatever. I had one historian say we should put red dots on the most important points in the post-war gallery in case visitors might miss those important parts. Uh-huh. So there clearly there were 
uh, that is uh, particularly w- particular well-intentioned and well-informed individuals, be they scholars, um, uh, be they stakeholders, be they donors, had their own ideas about what was important in the story. There were some, for example, I had two, two donors uh, who said that the only interesting part of the story is the modern period. Who cares about the rest? I had scholars who were the best in the world who said it should be a Holocaust museum. So you can imagine, there are very different visions, very different concerns, interests, anxieties, and uh, all of those were uh, positions we needed to hear, to think about, to take into account, but ultimately we had to create an exhibition that we felt was coherent from Guinea to end, that it shouldn't somehow be a hodgepodge of responses to a whole range of demands, that it had to be one very intellectually well-thought-through, coherent, intellectual program. Did you have a sense of the story that you wanted to tell in the beginning, or like how much did that change over time? And I... I think it would be really great to just even sort of lay out what the, how the story of the exhibition or the museum as you see it now. So Okay, so basically we did not have a, quote, story that we wanted to tell that, was, that you would think of as a master narrative. It starts from the beginning and goes to the very end. But we did have a set of principles that guided the narrative and the narration. The first principle was that the most important period in the history of Polish Jews is... 1,000 years. Not the Holocaust, not the post-war period, not the interwar period, but the entire 1,000 years. And for that reason, I was opposed to opening the exhibition a gallery at a time because there was a worry that it would take so long to finish the whole exhibition that maybe we could open the medieval gallery in the fall and then if we have the post-war one ready in the spring and then in the next, you know, et cetera, I said, no way. It's one, it's a 1,000-year story, it has to be experienced as a thousand-year story. So that was, because what's the message? The message is that Jews were present continuously without interruption until the Holocaust for a millennium. And that's a very big message. They were never expelled, which is not true for Spain, for mm-hmm. Italy, Germany, France, England. There's no, you know, England, it's a couple of centuries, they're not there. They're expelled a few times from Vienna. They were expelled from Spain and never came back to speak of. Right. So... The, the idea that they have a continuous presence in this territory is a very, very big message. Right. It's also what explains, which is the second principle, how Jews in this territory became the largest Jewish community in the world. And that's another message. And how in the 18th century, half the Jews in the world lived here. There were 750,000 Jews in the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, which is the territory that is today Lithuania, Ukraine, uh, Belarus, Poland. So it's a big territory. Half the... Half, half the Jews in the world live there. Wow. So we're talking about the largest Jewish community in the world, and we're talking about a place that, by the end of the medieval period, was becoming a se- the center of the Ashkenazi Jewish world and a center of the Jewish world. So that, in other words, these are big, big messages. They're not, quote, a story that has stage one, two, three, four, five, but they are big, 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 big messages. Yeah. Fourth big message is that Jews were not only in Poland, but also of Poland, that they are an integral part of this history, that a history of Poland is not complete without a history of Polish Jews, and vice versa, and that what we wanted to tell was an integrated history, what I call an integral history, where there's not a separate Polish history and a separate Jewish history, and that the Polish history is a context for the Jewish history, that it's an integrated history of Polish Jews. What that meant also was that it would not be a history of Polish-Jewish relations, anti-Semitism, etc., but would rather be a history of Polish Jews, a history in which Jews are agents in their own history and not objects on which others project their fantasies and fears. So, of course, there's anti-Semitism, Polish-Jewish relations, good and bad, but it's not a history of, essentially, a history of anti-Semitism is a history of Poles. That's my view. Mm. So it will be a history that would show a spectrum of relations, of coexistence and conflict, of competition and cooperation, of separation and integration, that there'd be times when one of those terms would be in the foreground and times when the other would be in the foreground. Right. 
And what that meant that was very important for us, that this history not be presented through the lens of the Holocaust. It was important for us that visitors not come and, and be thinking the Holocaust is coming and that this history was leading inevitably to the Holocaust. So we didn't want them to foreshadow the Holocaust and we didn't want them to backshadow the Holocaust and look at this history through the Holocaust. Yeah. And so with that set of principles, that governed the kind of story that we told and the way in which we told it. So basically the exhibition is organized so that you enter into a forest as a space of historical imagination where we um, are inspired and we tell the legend of how the legend the Jews told themselves of how they came to Poland and why they stayed. The medieval gallery, which covers more than half of the millennium. Mm -hmm. It goes from 965 to about 1500. Then the early modern period from 1564 to 1772. So essentially the period of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Then from 1772 to World War I, which is the period when the Commonwealth was divided between Austria and Russia and the Kingdom of Prussia. Then the period from World War I to World War II, which is the period of the Second Polish Republic. Then the Holocaust, and then the post-war years. Yeah. All those are such important things, because I think one thing that I encounter a lot that I sort of was, this notion was sort of popped by exploring Klezmer, and, and so just to think about how much we conflation happens in, I mean, certainly... Growing up in a mainstream, conservative-ish, Jewish, American Jewish, East Coast environment, just everything is just, it couldn't have been more conflated and pop, like ground together until all these differences that are so interesting are erased. And then, you know, for me, when I learned the music, that stuff just starts, you, cause you zoom in and you zoom in and you zoom in and you, you keep finding out more differences and the music from here was slightly different than the music from there and then this and that but for what you're talking about being able to having the opportunity to focus so strongly on you know what you said was the biggest home for Jews in Europe and you know the center of all this stuff it's it's such an important opportunity for both non-Jews and also Jews to be able to reclaim that part of our history and if you're if you're if you have heritage there which I'm sure a lot of people do. And if you don't have heritage there to really, I mean, hopefully eventually get your own version of that, uh, of this kind of exploration, but then uh, to be able to see that difference and not see where you see yourself in that and then see where you don't see yourself in that. And like, wow, there's a lot of us and there's more, there's a lot of different kinds of us. The thing you said about the Holocaust, that's so great. And I want to hear about ways in which you did that by making sure that you didn't either for, what was it? For, foreground or back. Or, foreshadow uh, or backshadow. Back I love backshadow. That's great. It, you know, as a klezmer musician, you have to, it's not as much as anymore, I think, but that's, you know, that's sort of like, and a lot of times that's sort of like the, the backdrop of what you do. And you're trying to like, well, this was, it's a lot more than that. I mean, I primarily play klezmer music that was made in America when I play traditional stuff. So it's not even, has it really have anything to do with it? You know, it was, it was apart from that. So it's that, that really resonates with me from coming at, from the musical standpoint. So what ways did you sort of avoid that pitfall? The principle was to keep the visitors in the moment of the telling of the story. That is to say, to keep the visitors in the historical present. And we did that by only using sources from the period to tell the story of the period. So, for example, in the Holocaust, there's no post-war testimony. Uh -huh. there, there, there's no survivor testimony. There's no, there are no videos of older survivors remembering what happened. The entire Holocaust gallery is, is, is created from documents that were created in the period itself, from the Ringelblum archive, from diaries, from letters from reports from whatever materials we can get our hands on and i think there might be a few cases where there's something from the immediate post-war years like immediate but no not what you normally find uh, in so many holocaust museums which is in addition to sources from the period which they obviously do present there's a very strategic and i think very powerful and emotionally effective use of testimony from survivors on video you see that at the Museum of Jewish Heritage, for example, here in New York. And it was a feature when the museum opened that was widely praised and widely appreciated. So we don't do that. We stay inside the historical moment, 
and we try to capture the perspective of those whose story we're telling. What did they know? What did they think? What did they say? What do they sound like? And what, by doing that, in a sense, we ask our visitors to bracket what they know about what happened later and to be fully in the moment of the telling of the story. That, that is for us crucial. And we do it by using primary sources, using quotations, uh, creating a multi-voice narrative so that you're actually hearing a variety of voices, sometimes in a variety of languages. There's so many demands now, and I, I first noticed maybe about four, four to six years ago that there were a lot of, like I said earlier, there was a lot about this history of, of this culture and the revival and all the different ways it spreads out that I didn't really understand. I mean, you know, so when I, of course, when I visited the museum in 2013, the exhibit that was up was that temporary uh, thing with the photos and with the music by the Klezmatics. And so, you know, it all connects extremely, Klezmatics was really my gateway into this music. So it all, it all connects extremely closely. And as I want to understand really the whole context of this Klezmer revival, and I've learned a lot. And now it seems to be more importantly, what role does all these contexts and lessons that we've learned and, you know, your stories about designing this exhibition and all sorts of stuff are really great examples of this. What lessons have we learned by studying ourselves, basically, that we can take not only for Jews, especially in America, and like, how do we figure out our place in the world today? And then other groups of people, I mean, and you've really taken on as your work, your own heritage, which is the Polish-Jewish connection and mix and experience and all that stuff. I mean, you know, we're recording this in March 2018, and there's a lot going on, you know, all over the place, not the least of which in Poland, right? So mm, let's start by saying, like, your dream for the place of the museum in Poland as it was finished and as it became publicly available, and then how is how do you see that fitting into what's going on right now? Well, right, what's going on right now uh, is that there is currently a right-wing government in power, and their approach is to basically promulgate an historical policy that will be, quote, pro-Polish, that's how they would put it. Yeah. And what that means from their point of view is to, quote, get up off their knees, down with the pedagogy of shame. This is the language they use. Right. Up off our knees, down with the pedagogy of shame, to promote a positive, patriotic Polish narrative of history, to celebrate heroes, to recognize suffering and martyrdom, to... Basically, I would say promote patriotism. They distinguish between patriotism and nationalism, which for me is a distinction without a difference. Mm -hmm. They would argue that patriotism is a kind of healthy affirmation of one's country and that nationalism is not. Right. So that, that would be the distinction they would probably make. But overall, what it leads to is an ethno-national notion of what it means to be Polish and that means 
Catholic. Right. And it me and and they are uh, very uh, socially very conservative. Mm-hmm. So, for example, they've just passed a law that all businesses must close on Sunday. Really, we'll see how long that lasts. Yeah. But the issues that have become lightning rods and have created the diplomatic crisis with Israel and the United States have to do with an amendment to a bill that dictates what can and cannot be said about the Holocaust. Right. And specifically, that criminalizes speech or writing, but let's say speech, that blames the Polish state or nation for the Holocaust and essentially holds Poland as a state and nation co-responsible with Germany for the genocide. This is a very, very, very sensitive topic in Poland. Yeah. And the phrase that is most toxic is the phrase Polish death camps. And to my way of thinking, it is really a non-issue. Of course, it's not a non-issue. It's a very hot-button issue. But I say it's a non-issue because, so far as I can tell, it was not so commonly used in English until they made a fuss about it. Number one. And number two, everybody understood it. Pretty much everybody understood that it meant death camps in Poland, not death camps created by Poland. So that, I mean, obviously it's common knowledge that the Germans were the responsible for the Holocaust and that they created ghettos and death camps and that they created them in Poland. It's common, basically it's common knowledge. And also I think it's a a formulation in English I'm not aware that this kind of formulation is a shorthand in other languages. Maybe it is, but I never hear about it as an issue in any other language but English. And before this became a hot-button issue, you, re- you rarely ever encountered it. But now, it, it's been repeated millions and millions of times, which means it's essentially imprinted itself on everybody's consciousness right. of Polish death camps. And just denying it is a way of affirming it, which is the opposite of what they want and the opposite of what should be. So the first the first hot button issue is this criminalizing of what can and cannot be said about the Holocaust, and it's a it's a bad idea because it has been I think misconstrued as limiting freedom of expression and uh, limiting open and independent historical research. In a way, it does, but not explicitly and. This particular amendment needs to be seen in the context of other planks or other bricks in the edifice of historical policy of this right-wing government, because it's not the only element. So, for example, there, I don't know whether they've done it or not, but there was an effort to pass some legislation that would dictate the official narrative of the events of March 1968, okay. for example. Yeah. And history is not something that should be legislated. Right. And historical narrative is not something that should be a matter of legislating. And what is it they wanted? Why do they want to legislate it? Because March 1968 is a complicated set of events. It had to do with internal struggle, struggles for power within the communist government. It had to do with student protests against censorship. And it had to do with an anti-Semitic campaign that was state-organized and led to the last wave of Jewish emigration. Right. And so the... Uh, idea here is to retell that narrative so that the communists are the bad guys, that Polish society is innocent, that it was a happy story of youth protesting the communists, and the anti-Semitic element was engineered by the communists and was not the main story. So that's the sort of spin that this legislation was trying to achieve in establishing how March 1968 should be presented, talked about, narrated, etc. So that would be a second. Then there, there, are, there, are other, there are other sort of bricks in this edifice of historical policy uh, that have to do with, for example, modifying the Museum of the Second World War so that it is less international and more basically the story of Poland. Mm-hmm. in the Second World War. It's already the story of Poland in the Second World War, but apparently not sufficiently heroic. I see. And not sufficiently, not sufficiently martyrological. Yeah. So basically, 
uh, I would say that when you think internationally about Poland's problem with its image, I'm hard-pressed to identify anything other than anti-Semitism. When, you know, uh, when I see Poland struggling with its image and its attempt to improve its image, it attempts to improve its image by showing how good it was to Jews. But Jews seem to be, their, seem to be the problem. And internationally, internally, there are lots of other issues. Yeah. Internally, there are pl- plenty of other issues that have, t- that have to do with I- issues that are of interest only inside Poland that wouldn't resonate internationally. But this whole Polish death camps is all about the Holocaust. And the Holocaust is all about Jews. I- I- the Second World War is another story. You know, in other words, the Holocaust and the, ho- the Second World War aren't the same thing. And the occupation of Poland was... On the one hand, an occupation that produced the Holocaust, but it wasn't only the Holocaust. It also, they terrorized Poles, they, they mass-murdered Polish elites and clergy. The first thing that they did, they ruled by terror. So I would say that the Museum of the Second World War deals with the Second World War in Poland, but it's much broader then the Holocaust, the Holocaust is only part of it. Right, as it should be. It's like, only part yeah. of it. The Warsaw Uprising isn't about the Holocaust. Hmm. The Warsaw Uprising, not the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. Oh, the okay. Warsaw Uprising in 1944. Ah, it's not about right. the Holocaust. Right. It's about Polish uh, underground rising up and trying to defeat the Germans. Mm-hmm. Nothing to do with the Holocaust. Right. But internationally, the problem internationally is how... The, the world sees Poland's relationship to Jews and specifically around the issue of anti-Semitism, the Holocaust, and the immediate post-war period, and now. And basically the moves that Poland has taken to try to improve its image have made it worse. Yeah. And it's a, a complete misreading of the international scene. And I think what it shows is how provincial and how parochial and how inward-looking is this current government. Mm. That uh, they basically are tone-deaf. They have no feeling and no sense of how any of the things that they're concerned about actually play internationally. So the vision for the Poland Museum and how that relates to the current moment, whether it's over here or over there, you know, how do you see so, what's possible? Okay, so almost everywhere where this, these issues are being discussed, Polin Museum is cited as a positive example, as an example of uh, positive Polish-Jewish relations, as an example of a, a positive indication of the renewal of Jewish life in Poland, as a positive indication of reconciliation between Poles and Jews, as an honest broker, as telling a truthful history of a history that includes the best and the worst. So the museum is generally cited by internally in Poland and externally as a, as a very positive development. The museum is commemorating three events this year, three anniversaries. The 75th anniversary of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, and that doesn't seem to provoke any controversy. For the moment, that doesn't seem to be controversial. There'll be the commemoration at the monument. There'll be a concert in the evening. Uh, there'll be the, our, our beautiful daffodil campaign, which uh, I can describe, but it, basically it's not controversial. It's the 100th anniversary of Poland's regained independence, meaning the uh, Second Polish Republic that was formed after World War I. So for the decades of the 20s and 30s, Poland was independent after more than a century being under Russia, Prussia, and Austria. But the third anniversary is the 50th anniversary of March 1968. Right. And that anniversary is a very problematic one from the point of view of this current government's historical policy. Because from the perspective of Polish Museum, this is a story of approximately 13,000 Jews who felt they were forced to emigrate on one-way travel documents, renouncing their Polish citizenship, and leaving with a $5 American bill and their earthly possessions listed in detail and approved before they left and with no possibility to return. I mean, of course, later on, after 1989, things changed. These are people who didn't want to leave, never thought of leaving, were very identified with Polish language and culture, 
and who experienced uh, such harassment and such um, such terrible uh, being fired from their jobs, being shunned, and uh, be, you know being treated so poorly that they felt they had to leave. And what that meant was that more than half of the Jews living in Poland in 1968 left. Mm. More than half. I mean, there are approximately 20,000 Jews living in Poland at the time. 13,000 left. There were about 7,000. I mean, the numbers are very, very general. Uh, we don't have exact figures. And so what Pauline Museum has done is to create a program, including a temporary exhibition, a catalog, a public, pr- public programs, conference, etc., that explore March 68 more generally, because it's got these many elements to it, then focusing in specifically on the Jewish story, and exploring the anguish of deciding whether to stay or leave, and looking at those who left and the lives they made, and looking at those who stayed and the lives they made, and bringing them all together, and having them actually talk to each other, and these gatherings and reunions. So the current government doesn't like it, because, for example, they wouldn't fund it. The, the Minister of Culture wouldn't fund the, this program. They didn't like the title of the exhibition. Title of exhibition in Polish, literally, it would be Strangers at Home. In English, I suggested, and they're using it, we call it Estranged, March 68 and its aftermath. And, and in Polish, it's Obcev Domu, Strangers at Home, March 68 and its aftermath. They didn't like that. They said, what do you mean, strangers? They're not strangers. They're our brothers. We've lived together so nicely over all these years. So they wouldn't fund it. And of course, they're, they're not happy with uh, a program that presents anti-Semitism and that presents it not simply as, a, uh, as imposed by the communist authorities, which they see as being strictly uh, controlled by Moscow and mm. having no connection whatsoever to to Polish society. They claim that, that there was no Polish state. There was just a kind of a Russian puppet state. But Poland wasn't part of the Soviet Union. Hmm. It, yeah. you know, it was, under, it was uh, within the Soviet sphere of influence, right. but it wasn't part of the Soviet Union. So the idea that there was no Polish state and that Polish society was a completely separate story and that you just had this horrible communist government and that everything was imposed by the communists and that, 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 that nobody living in Poland bears any responsibility at all whatsoever for, for what happened. I mean, that, that's basically their approach to the matter. So clearly, our approach uh, in, it's, it's not holding every single person living in Poland responsible, but it sees that there is a... Uh, an element of Polish society for whom this was a very resonant campaign, this anti-Semitic campaign. So then, um, at the same time that we're opening this exhibition, the Minister of Culture holds a press conference in which he announces the creating of a new museum, the Museum of the Warsaw Ghetto, which he says will be a museum that will show the love of two nations. Wow. I mean, your guys are already there. So we'll see what this museum will be, but it's going to, so, I mean, I, I can well imagine the love of two nations and uh, it will presumably, <sighs> I, I, we'll see what it will be. Uh, between now and 2000, uh, between now and 2013, uh, pardon me, between now and 20. 23, when it's supposed to open, many things can happen. So we'll see what it will be. We can hope for the best, Mm -hmm. but there is a Jewish Historical Institute, and they have just opened a permanent exhibition of the Ringelblum Archive, which is the source for everything and anything you would ever want to know about the Warsaw Ghetto. Uh And there is our Holocaust Gallery, in which the centerpiece is a section on the Warsaw Ghetto. As it should be. As it should be. And so... Now there'll be a Museum of the Warsaw Ghetto, which will be created by the Ministry of Culture in conformity with their historical policy. Uh, it feels that rubs the wrong way, huh? I think so. Did you ever think you would end up in such geopolitical strife? You know, until this moment, when any, anybody would ask me, uh, how is this current political situation affecting the museum? My answer would be, not at all. So far, you know, basically, we're seen as a very positive element and as very reasonable, very balanced, very truthful. We've won all the big prizes. We have, um, you know, have had 2.5 million visits so far. Um, This weekend for the March 1968 exhibition that we just opened, we had over 4,000 visitors, which is like a record 
for for our temporary exhibition. So basically, you know, but now, yeah, when I think about it, I think to myself that the Ministry of Culture is not very happy with us. The tool they have right now is money. They can give us more money, less money. We'll see what they're going to do, but they can starve us. And in a sense, they by, by refusing to support our application for the March 68 exhibition, so basically we looked elsewhere for the money and we found it and we made the exhibition. And there's enormous interest in it and people are coming. So we'll see. We'll have to see. Wow. So, not to end on such a heavy note, I think we can turn a little bit away from some... So, after 10 years in Poland, you're back in New York. How long have you been back here? Since August. Wow, so that's not a long time. What What's some of the favorite things that you've come back to? What, my kitchen. Yeah? It's a great kitchen. My kitchen. I love my kitchen. So, in Warsaw, my studio apartment, I have half a fridge, two burners... And a microwave. And I have nobody to cook for. Although I started cooking for my colleagues at the museum and bringing food to the museum because I got desperate. And I just (laughs) needed to cook, even with my two burners and my half fridge and my microwave. So, first and foremost, my kitchen. Yeah. I mean, I should say, first and foremost, my husband. Right. Obviously. Obviously, my husband. But uh, in terms of other than my husband, uh, (laughs) whom I adore and I've been married to for 54 years, I would say my kitchen. My neighborhood, being able to walk to Chinatown, which is my most, most favorite part of the city, being able to walk to the Green Market on Saturday morning, uh, which I just adore. I go to my favorite farmers and I can just get wonderful things and can cook. Renewing uh, contact, renewing connections with my colleagues and friends that I've been away from for so long and have only been in touch with by email or if they've come to Poland or occasionally when I've come to New York, you know, we've seen each other. And just thinking about um, what's next. Yeah, sounds great. All right, Barbara, well, this was so amazing to get to talk to you and get to know you a little more. And I hope we get to keep talking and I look forward to what's next. Thank you very much. And I can understand why you are getting so many people downloading your podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you. All right. So that's me and BKG, part two. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope that you all got as much out of that as I did. She's an amazing person, and I'm really, really glad that we finally got to sit down and talk to each other. It's just remarkable what she's done in her career. And I also hope that I get to go to the Pauline Museum soon and get to take in the full exhibition that she's worked so hard to create and find a place for. You know, we talked about what's going on in Poland right now, and uh, it seems a little iffy in some ways. So... I want to wish her and all the people at the museum the best of luck navigating these times that uh, we, we all are finding ourselves living in. It's uh, quite a time these days. There's a lot of funny things going on, and I hope that we can all make it through safely and healthy. So that's all I got for today. That's all I got for this batch of episodes of Radiant Others. I want to thank you all for listening. I want to thank everybody who's shared it and who's talked to me about listening to it, whether they're in the car or doing whatever. It's, it's really awesome. And I'll be back with some new episodes in maybe uh, probably around the end of June or early July. That's my hope. And hopefully life will uh, allow me to do that on schedule. So... In the meantime, enjoy, and I hope you're doing well, and good Shabbos.
absolutely. Okay, uh, so how are we sounding? Well, let's see. We're just talking a little bit right now, okay. and uh, we'll see what it sounds like in a minute. Okay. So you, your husband said you've been living here for a really long time. 44 years. Woo! And then, of course, he followed up with how many years you've been married, because that seems... That's also... <laughs> I was like, all right, that's, I, I, I see the plot. That's exciting. Got married in 64, mm-hmm. so it's 54 years. It's amazing. It's really fantastic.